What does it mean to be called crazy in a crazy world? Listen to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Sponsored by peer-run support communities, Freedom Center, The Icarus Project, and Portland Hearing Voices. Madness Radio can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network and is online at kboo.fm slash madnessradio. Welcome to Madness Radio. This is your host, Will Hall. Today, my guest is Deborah Marshall. Deborah is a psychiatric survivor and human rights activist who grew up in Australia and today works as an editor in Prague, Czech Republic. So welcome to Madness Radio, Deborah Marshall. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being on the show, Deborah. And so you've been really an important figure in the European human rights movement around psychiatry and working with psychiatric uh, survivor issues since 2008. Is that right? I don't know about being an important figure, but um, being part of the activist movement has been really important to me personally. So I'd like to speak more about your work with human rights organizing internationally, but tell us about your, your own involvement with the psychiatric system. And your family has a history of being psychiatric patients in, in hospitals. Is that right? My family are survivors of the Holocaust in Europe who came to Australia. And psychiatry, I think, was the the way that distress and crisis and all of these um, feelings that couldn't be spoken about in in relation to the Holocaust and, and trauma were processed in Australia. So I think my grandfather and different people in my family ended up in the, in the system, on, on the receiving end of the system, but they didn't necessarily speak about it it was something that was taboo and shameful and yeah I don't think Australia is the most open society in in talking about these things either. So the difficulty in talking about and working through those traumatic experiences um, with the Holocaust that may have played a role in people ending up in the psychiatric system instead. I'm sure. I think the thing that characterized Australia in the 50s and 60s and maybe still today was this need to just, you know, kind of smile and not talk about anything. And I think that suppressing emotion and trauma and difficult things and and the history, the cultural history of the family was really important in the short term to surviving and assimilating People changed their names. They didn't speak languages that they'd grown up speaking. They stopped talking about people who died in awful ways. Often they didn't know what had happened to those people, so there was no way of even creating a story that could be shared in the family. There was just a lot of private grief and and guilt. I think when people survive something very difficult, often it means that they had to do things that they didn't necessarily want to do, and so there's guilt that can come with that even though the actions are often incredibly understandable in retrospect. So um, your relatives ended up in psychiatric hospitals and locked up and with different diagnoses? It wasn't talked about. I don't know exactly what happened in some cases. What I know is that there was a lot of distress and pain and that people, when the distress became too great, when, when life became unbearable, People sought help and the the natural progression of help still today in Australia is to 
um, end up in psychiatry if you if you can't cope it's seen as an individual problem and you end up in psychiatry with some kind of medication regime or um, electroshock in the case of some of us and and then you suffer the results of that in addition to the trauma that that you brought there in the first place so I witnessed a lot of her suffering from when I was small and it was frightening because she wasn't very verbal but she was very very distressed and very frustrated and there was a lot of anger in her and which was terrifying to a small child and she she didn't want to live and that desire to die was so what I lived with from when I was very small trying to protect her from what she said she wanted to do and and trying in some cases physically to stop her from hurting herself so that was that was very hard but it that we never had a conversation about it I think there's all these things are forces just that gravitate around you there maybe they come out in gestures or the way that people you know place objects down or there's something that is is non-verbal but is palpable how did this affect you as a kid growing up I was incredibly nervous I am an incredibly nervous person and I was very very I felt very responsible for what was going on and and I was told I was responsible as well in a lot of cases and so it wasn't only me inferring this it was it was it was said that I could perhaps be better behaved or I could be more respectful I could be more loving and and I became very very focused on school and and on being able to transcend my environment by by doing well at school. And did you start going through your own experiences of distress? I mean, it sounds like this is a great deal of, of pain and suffering for you. Yeah, I was very, very nervous, as I say. And as I got older and pressure got greater on me, I would be fine. Sometimes I would be able to perform under pressure. And then other times I couldn't. I was someone who was like a an infant just curled up on the floor and not able to, that's how I appeared, um, not able to move and not able to communicate. I had huge problems around language and language and words had always been very, very important to me, like very visceral. When I, when I hear words, I can hear their music and they balance in a way and when I would become anxious I would become very alienated from words. Um, I couldn't meet deadlines for work at school, which cost me quite a lot. Were you able to communicate about your distress with your family? I mean, what were they were they there for you at all and supporting you, or was it just also part of this general taboo of talking about things? To some degree, my dad understood because he'd had similar similar problems and at a similar age. And my dad has a quite a difficult trauma history that he doesn't really connect with. But he came to Australia as a child and was uh, living in hiding in Poland. He had a false identity from when he was uh, very small to when he was about four years old. He, he was Jewish and he had to pretend he was Catholic, which meant he had a different name. He had to recite Catholic prayers. He had to suppress knowledge he had because it was incriminating and dangerous and it could lead to people being killed and then he came to Australia and had to be himself (laughs) again in another context to to transmute himself 
and and so he understood he'd had he'd had trouble with exams and he'd had trouble performing in the way that people expected him to perform and how did you first get involved with mental health treatments and psychiatric interventions i was taken to psych psychiatrists and psychologists very early on probably from when I was I guess about 12 or 13 I'm not sure a lot of that part of my life is a bit it all kind of muddies together but I it got worse and I saw different people many different people and there were some very alienating experiences I hated talking and sometimes they would have my parents or my there at the same time which really meant I couldn't talk and then as I got older and the distress got worse people started saying that it wasn't enough to be in outpatient and I should go in and it was originally sort of suggested it would be for a few days but that turned into many months and that was it didn't achieve anything it was awful was there ever any connection made between the experiences that you were going through and the trauma history of your family and what you were living with on a day-to-day basis with your mother's being in so much crisis and distress ongoing and her ongoing suicidal feelings and suicide attempts and all the trauma that was being played out in your family? In a very, very superficial way by some people, but not really. And in a way that vilified my mom and was just saying, they remember people said, psychiatrists said, that their patients are divided into the mad and the bad and the sad. I remember that and that I was sad and, you know, and so that was kind of an okay status, but my mother was bad. And I did feel angry at my mum, of course. I felt angry at my mum. And there were times when I really wished that she she would <laughs> just go away. But this kind of lack of understanding of anything and very super everything was incredibly superficial sometimes there was awful groups and and it was it did nothing it was just awful and so a lot of medications and group meetings and therapy it sounds like and this went on for months and months in the system yeah it was it was not working and I was very very it broke me in a way I felt more and more I felt more and more hopeless and more and more separated from any possibility of things ever getting better and ever going I had to drop out of university and of ever going back to university I couldn't see any path out and then it was suggested that I should have electroshock and so so that's what happened there were a lot of moments that I realized where I realized that we weren't seen as humans. We weren't seen as people. We were seen as these awful threats. There were psych nurses who wouldn't walk. They wouldn't walk in front of us. They always had to walk behind us because they were acting like we would attack them. And we were we were not even thinking about anything like that. I saw, I remember seeing people self-harming and then being treated like they were these awful nuisance attention seeking was a word that was used all the time and didn't deserve to be sutured didn't deserve to be cared for or comforted and of course the other patients would end up being the ones who provided that care had meaningful relationships in hospital with some some people who are 
still in my life and some people who are not alive and I think a turning point for me was when I I made a suicide attempt and and I ended up being treated in a way that was horrible I, I always think that after you've been strapped down something changes the next time you walk into a store or you do something normal you're not the same person you've someone who's been strapped down you've been treated like an animal and and I think that a lot of things that happen when people make suicide attempts are punishment they have no that they have no healing effect there's no understanding for someone in that situation which is the most natural situation to be in to be in so much distress that you want to get out you know like that's a human response to pain is to try to stop the pain and it's nothing (laughs) from another planet it's completely something that most caring friends understand and, and many people can relate to even though it's not a conversation that's easy to have. But I think that treatment and the use of nasal tubes with charcoal and in a very, very, very nasty way were designed to teach you a lesson so you wouldn't do it again. And I think it is very hard to move on from that. And I, I, I don't think I ever really wanted to talk about it or... I did talk about it. I think I just wanted to get up the next day and walk down the street and be pretend to be someone that had never happened to. And that was very much how I lived my life in relation to psychiatry was just not to talk about these things. And many things that were much worse that happened to people around me, I think that I was fairly lucky maybe because I was socialised to be compliant. Like I was a very shy girl and... After I had electroshock, it changed my personality a little bit. I became very, very, very angry. Like some people who are um, older, who are losing their memories, become very, very frustrated and angry. And I could, rem- I can remember how terrifying it was not to be able to, you know, know very basic words in the English language. <laughs> like potato, I think, was a word that I struggled with. And for me, that was terrifying because I never felt like I was anything more than my mind. And here was my mind just mm, being dissembled, it seemed. And a very strange consciousness because you are aware that this is happening to your mind. <laughs> so it's you. But um, you're also losing yourself at that moment. And I think I was very lucky with electroshock in a way because I think it's got much worse. I think now they apply it to both sides of people's head and people have longer treatments and it's the impact on memory is even worse. What, what I did go through traumatized me for sure. I just didn't talk about it. You said that there were some things that you saw with other patients at the hospital. What were some of the things that, that you witnessed? I think that there's kind of a technological approach to care in Australia. Like it's all about the new drugs and the new ECT and everything is with euphemisms. It's People don't really talk about the reality of solitary confinement, what it means to not have your own have a toilet and to be locked up. But it, like none of the, they all have different euphemistic words, and everyone thinks it's about in the public thinks it's about care and healing, and that people should be taken into these systems because it's natural I think people think it's it's completely fine and natural and it's only when you've been inside that you see that it's experiment it feels like experimentation and you see people whose lives are 
really cut short people you you care about who are just suffering the results of something that was done to them in the system that's completely separate to um whatever they came in the reason they came in 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 the first place or the reason they were they were taken in in the first place I think that I th- felt like I saw a lot of fraud, <laughs> like basically that people, doctors would come up to people at times when they were not really able to speak or at meals, older people who were, who were had just had electroshock and try to get them to sign forms and that it just seemed like a big money-making thing for psychiatrists is what I, what I perceived, but it you know, it's been some years now as well, um, and I think things have got much worse. I think community treatment has increased exponentially in my state, Victoria. I think it's pro- pro- I think it is the highest in the world. Community treatment meaning the, having court orders to force people to be on psychiatric medications in the community under threat of being taken back and locked up in the hospital. Yeah, yeah, we we say CTOs, but you need to turn up for appointments to be forced drugged <laughs> otherwise you um, have an injection otherwise you you will be taken back and what would you say to that person who's maybe thinking well look these are psychotic people these are people with extreme distress and mo- emotional problems sure there's some problems with the treatments but this is really trying to help them and to keep them you know safe and and off the streets because they can't actually be at home they really need to be in hospitals what, what might you say to somebody who's who's thinking that I think that the impulse to to connect with people and to to stop suffering, you know, maybe this is understandable. It's a, it's a human it's a human impulse, but it's actually completely counterproductive to force anyone to do anything. A, ver- a very very powerful survivor figure in my life, the activist Claire Shaw, she talks about having a really crap day, just having the worst day you could possibly have and coming home and feeling terrible and finding the cats vomited on the rug and everything's gone wrong and then just wanting to do the one thing that would calm you, which is very often like things that the outside world perceives as dangerous or psychotic or but maybe it's too to hurt yourself or maybe it's to to reach out in a way that is frightening because you uh you you appear you know distressed and and chaotic or, or whatever it is and then when people say to you the one thing that you want to do that would calm you you have to be forcibly restrained from doing that you you have to they when people try to to force you to suppress this instinct which is a survival instinct really it's it's the worst possible thing that that could happen i think it's it completely crushes and traumatizes and just leaves you feeling very very alone and misunderstood and then finding secret ways to do the thing that would that would help whether it's planning your own death or whether it's you know uh, hurting yourself in a different way or or whatever it is it's really about having a conversation with the person and and honoring the thing that they're doing they're trusting the community with by when someone says i want to die in a way they are 
really uh, showing an incredible amount of trust in the community to then come forward and say, I hear you, you know, I can hear what's happening, tell me more, you know, how can we find a way that would, that would change things for you? That's a huge act of trust, especially knowing that that's not the culture we live in, that it's not a culture where you can have those conversations and it's not a culture where there are many people who will say, you know, what can we do without saying, here's, I'm going to force you to do this or do that. How did you survive this? How did you make it out of that system to where you are today? I was fortunate because I was able to stay at university. I had to drop out many times, but eventually I found a place for myself in the Russian department. It was like this very peripheral department in the university that no one really invested in because Russian wasn't seen as some economically useful subject. And so I was able to get some money to get away from Australia, which was what I felt I needed to do. I didn't remember a lot of what had happened around ECT. I also knew that I continued to be a very distressed person and I couldn't see how someone like me who was sometimes okay, sometimes not okay, would ever be able to be financially independent, would ever be able to um, have a life independent of psychiatry. And I wanted to start again. I think that's what I felt I needed to escape. It was like almost (laughs) another kind of suicide attempt. I wanted to end my life in Australia and start again where no one knew me. And I, I had so much shame about what had happened to me. So in a way, you became an exile like your family did. Yeah, unconsciously, I would say. I wasn't, it wasn't totally planned. It was more, you know, an escape. I guess it's the meaning of asylum, really. Like I was trying to find asylum in, in, in the world. And I know that one thing I had noticed, I noticed many things. I was very um, alone. I spent a lot of time on my own and I noticed that when I was studying Russian, I was discovering a new language that was uh, not only new linguistic structures, but a new way of thinking about the world. And suddenly, and it was actually a way, a, a language where emotion had more place than in English. Uh, people could speak in a very dark, humid way about feeling awful, about wanting to die. <laughs> um, and no one, <laughs> no one... I had different meaning and so I I felt actually like this language itself was it finding a new way to, to be in the world. And Deborah, let's talk about how you're living uh, today because some of the things, the traumas that you experience, I know that you're carrying with you and also just the ways in which you're just different, the way that you learned as a child to just be different in the world. And I know that some of that was diagnosed and they talk about thought disorder or personality disorder or different psychiatric labels for that. There was a break in my biography, I guess, where I was not thinking about myself in terms of psychiatry at all. I moved to the Czech Republic and I found job, not a very good job, but I found a job and I was able to uh, to do things I never had. A psychiatry had told me I wouldn't be able to do, like make enough money to buy stuff for myself and pay rent. And and I, but I was still struggling a lot. And I um, was trying to figure out what had happened in Australia and to find a way to not be so distressed 
as I, as I was all the time, every time things would get overwhelming for me with deadlines or, um, or uh, social pressures or anything, I would really, really struggle. I would, I would suffer a lot. And I was very conscious about never appearing suicidal to other people because I'd grown up knowing how awful it is to carry around fear that someone might hurt themselves. Like I, I was so conscious of that. And my, I always spoke about my, my effect in the world. That was like something psychiatry taught me. And then this got very um, exacerbated and it led to a crisis because I found out from a psychiatrist, a woman psychiatrist um, who had seen me in Australia that my, my diagnosis, which I, I hadn't ever known was personality disorder, was borderline personality disorder. And I, I remember when I read this, it was in an email um, the first time and um, she said this and it was like something dropped through me it was like myself shattered into a thousand pieces I couldn't move I was I felt absolutely destroyed as a person the words just that there was something wrong with my personality myself and that you can't actually do a google search you can't go on the internet the internet is not a safe place for you if you have had that diagnosis it's like you know being in a neighborhood full of people who are going to taunt you um you know for something that you um you don't even really understand but something they perceive in you and every website is about how awful people with this diagnosis are how manipulative and attention seeking and incurable or only curable through careful like um, infantilizing thought um, modification programs you know it's really I can't really put into words how much this hurt me and how how alone and how ashamed I felt I felt like I couldn't even what is very difficult and people might not know is that anger that you feel at having had this happen to you is very much based on the fear it's true as much as you know it's crap and I was a pretty um critical person I mean it was a very critical person I, I I didn't have any respect for psychiatry um and I didn't respect anything about the the logic or the the care or anything in psychiatry that the there's something in psychiatry that represents a whole cultural way of, of looking at distress and way of looking at people who don't appear to be productive and coping and self-sufficient and people who appear to be needy and in, in a way that, you know, because they don't have enough support perhaps or for whatever reason. And it was devastating. It, it I wasn't able to function after, after that happened at all. I, my, my life stopped. Um, and it um, was more than ECT, more than anything, that was the thing that made my life unlivable. And it was very hard to even explain to other survivors how much that destroyed me. But I, mm. I, I went looking for answers. I connected with a UK activist called Claire Shaw, who's done a lot of critical work about 
the uh, diagnosis and the the use of the diagnosis especially against women and um, the impact of the diagnosis and does a lot of work on alternatives to support people in crisis and is just a, she's a poet as well someone who was very important to me it was important to find that my experience that I was so ashamed of wasn't unique I'd never actually met psychiatric survivors people who were politically organizing and I suppose I didn't even know I was looking for them and then I Claire had received another letter and a few other letters from people in a similar situation to me people who had been so injured by this this insult that that their their lives had, had stopped and um and they and she put me in touch with them and then we we started to to be a very small collective of women a, um activists who were campaigning for the for the abolition of of all psychiatric diagnosis diagnoses but especially of the the personality disorders which are their death sentence you you feel subhuman you don't feel like like a person who warrants care. And I stopped being able to socialize. I stopped being able to, I felt like if I was distressed, I shouldn't call my friends because that would be attention seeking. I would still be able to comfort friends because I had had such a big range of emotional experiences and known people who had had complicated lives and it wasn't only natural, it was what I wanted to do. It was, it was completely comfortable for me. But I couldn't seek care. I couldn't seek seek support. It's very very hard. I even did some activism with some UK activists. They they had a conference about personality disorder, and standing up on the stage and saying I had had this diagnosis, that was very difficult. Like it's very it's you feel like no one in the room looks at you the same again. No one looks at you as though something happened to you. They look at you as though you've said that you were a child molester. That's what it feels like. You're damaged goods. If you're just tuning in, this is Madness Radio and our guest today is Deborah Marshall. Deborah is a psychiatric survivor and human rights activist who grew up in Australia and today works as an editor in Prague, Czech Republic. Judith Herman, who's the author of the book Trauma and Recovery, uh, described the borderline personality disorder as essentially a, a sophisticated insult. It's the most dehumanizing of, of things you can say to someone. And I remember when I was part of my schooling, there was a class on psychopathology, and we were talking about borderline personality disorder. And so they decided they would show a horror film where the woman is a murderer and she's like killing men and and this was the the example the case example of what it is and 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 really when someone says that another person is borderline it's really a code word for don't listen to this person don't get close to this person don't interact with this person they need to be in a separate category and so it's a very very devastating diagnosis it's actually really an update of the word hysteria which is so clearly a misogynist term and borderline is just a continuation of that uh, sexism because it really is directed primarily at, at women and um, all the research connects trauma histories so there's a very clear political aspect to this where people who who really should be encouraged and supported to look at their histories and the social context of their experience and the way in which trauma has played itself out in their lives instead are pushed to seeing themselves as defective and seeing a problem 
inside of them, inside of, of their own selves, inside of their own personalities. And this question of personality disorder is very closely tied to the whole question of, well, how do you live differently in the world? Because you are somebody who has difficulty communicating. I'm someone who has difficulty communicating. And so it may be that there are times when I withdraw or I disengage and um, I'm not able to communicate or not able to speak. And in those moments, if my friends say, oh, Will, you're, you're doing your schizoid thing, or Will, you're dissociating, or you know, Will, you're having a trauma experience, this kind of language can often make me feel pathologized and put down and dehumanized. And it's not a symptom of my schizophrenia that I'm staying in my room and not talking to you about my feelings. That's a way of me going through my experience that's maybe different than other people, but it doesn't show that I'm defective or somehow genetically abnormal or there's somehow something wrong with me on my person level. It's just a way that I'm working through my experience that's different than other people. Yeah, I, I do agree with what you've said about personality disorder. I've witnessed it having horrible legal effects on people's lives as well, where they can't get childcare or where people who've been sexually harassed at work, what they say, their words are, you know, completely undermined um, because, or, or, you know, sexual assault is completely undermined because they're attention-seeking and manipulative and, and these things. And then the experience of distress is also culturally and psychiatrically put into other words. And I, I very much agree that when someone comes to you and tells you what is happening for you and even explains it in a way that they think is doing you a big favor, which I think people, a lot of people in the personality disorder industry, because it is an industry, there's huge amounts of money in it. There's a growing diagnosis. There are big centers and therapies that are huge money spinners for the people responsible um, and that are easily to like replicate so they can get spread all over the world very fast, like McDonald's. They, those people think they're doing people some of them, I think, think they're doing you this great favor to explain in, in what they don't even understand is a patronizing way how, how your little mind and consciousness and your trauma history work. But it leaves me feeling very, very alone and alienated. And I actually think that inviting someone, even someone who's struggling to communicate, which is often me, into a conversation and respecting their rhythm respecting the speed and the time and whatever they need to feel safe and letting it be in their own words like the theorist Arthur Frank he talks about letting people's stories breathe and I think there is something in this aspiration like in the like literally being able to be safe start to find words that make sense to you that connect with you that make you feel more part of the human language and and then whatever framework makes sense to you I think sometimes we're like birds and we just sort of go around picking up bits and pieces of different frameworks and different schema that you know connect maybe not even permanently but just for this moment in my life whether that's human rights discourse, whether that's in a particular alternative, whether that's, for me, it's often been in literature to see crazy characters and that it's okay for Anna Karenina to not know how to cope without someone saying she has a personality disorder. It's okay for Medea to not cope with her kids without someone saying she's a bad mother. You know, like it's just, I just 
I think it's we find our own ways and systems and no one else has the right to tell you who you are or to explain your story to you, even if they think that they're doing you this giant favour by giving you a label. I think you point to something really important. It's really about the power relations. Is, is, it a, is it an empowering experience? Does it make someone feel more themselves or does it put them in a position of dependency and control and something from the outside defining you from words that aren't yours, that don't really reflect your experience, but they're really more the clinical gaze of the, the clinician or the, the DSM or the doctor that is deciding for you what your experience is? I agree with that and I think that what is difficult for some activists, for me it's been difficult, is that there are people in the psychiatric patients who do connect with the clinical framework. I've been at conferences where people have stood up and said, the borderline personality disorder saved my life and the professionals seem very happy (laughs) to hear that there's someone saying, you know, that their product was so wonderful but it's been very, very hard as someone who was destroyed by that diagnosis and had to rebuild my my sense of self-worth and um, my right to be in the world after that diagnosis to hear that it was beneficial to someone. And I think that respecting everyone's right to decide on how helpful psychiatry and its frameworks are is another part of it, which is... Some activism, I think, can err on the side of almost assuming that these people haven't reached consciousness yet. It's quite patronising itself in the activist movement to sort of feel like, you know, you're not as evolved as me because you believe in psychiatry. Yeah, in a, in a very strange way, I think that um, activists can become psychiatrists in reverse just without the social power because we start to diagnose the system and we say everything is in black and white terms and therefore this diagnosis means this but it's the opposite it's always a bad thing and that i think is a in some ways plays out the shadow of psychiatry and i think it comes from intense feelings of revenge and trauma and being hurt but we have to be very careful about just not flipping the roles and doing the thing to the other side that we're so upset that they've been doing to us I think the anger I had initially was life-saving, like it was, it was possessed me. And I, I mean, when I, shortly after I connected with Claire Shaw, I discovered your show, Madness Radio, and I was at a terrible point in my life. I was in so much pain thinking about this personality disorder and really not even able to I was barely able to go online because I would look it up and get lost in these awful, awful websites where people were comparing stories about the BPDs, the borderlines in their lives, as they would say. And I discovered your show and I was in so much pain that I wasn't able to sit still and listen to it. I was so anxious. I would I started to go running and running was like Russian for me. I was something completely new. I had two very flat feet. I walked like like a duck, people would say. But I forced myself to go running in the snow in Prague while listening to your show. And when I heard that there were other people in the world who were angry, who had had similar experiences, who had begun to make poetry and who had begun to come up with alternative ways of working and act, being active... It was like little explosions in my head of of a good kind. (laughs) 
and that was really amazing that was really and that's actually how I connected with the European movement I heard some activists from Europe on on your show and then I, I emailed the European network I'm so glad to hear that Madness Radio was helpful to you, Deborah. I'm really glad you're here with us today and doing the work that you're doing and speaking out about this. And and one of the things I'm really interested in is is the idea of a social model of disability, the idea that it is possible for people to be different, to maybe come from an experience that isn't shared by most people, and it still doesn't have to be a problem inside of the person. It's about how we relate to those people and do we make space for different styles of communication? Do we make space for people with different needs? Do we make space for all the people who are not only trauma survivors themselves, but come from generations of trauma? What, what do we do about all the people who have been so shaped by the Holocaust, so shaped by the widespread violence that has happened through history? Do we hold them up to a normal standard? Or do we say, look, we're gonna meet you with your experiences and we're gonna work with you to really value and respect the ways that you've learned to protect yourself and to cope and to live with what you've been through. So this this question of how do we embrace difference and diversity and really see things in terms of social responsibility rather than, okay, there's a defect in the individual or you're not measuring up to our standard of normal or productive or functional in society. I struggle with the social model of disability and I can't pretend to give some kind of like helpful primer to what it is um, because I struggle with it. But I think that there's um, traditionally an idea of disability as being something inside a person and being a, a flaw or an impairment. You are not able to, to walk or you're not able to see. The social model of disability is far more focused it's exclusively focused on how your environment, the attitudes of people around you, what is accessible, what is required, how these things are um, oppressive if you uh, if you don't fit into a particular mold of what a person should be in the world. So the, the disability doesn't lie inside you at all. The disability is in the interaction with your way of being in the world and what the world allows you to do. So it's probably clearer it is clearer it is much clearer if you have a physical mod a physical disability because because this model was devised by people who came out of the the disability rights movement who, who were many people with physical disabilities but for instance you you know your building might not be accessible or it or a text might not be readable and then you can say the disability is existing outside of you I struggle with it it wasn't a natural language for me to relate to my experience partly because I you know it was something that I didn't see immediate connections with it didn't feel emotionally right it wasn't my language and I think also because there's quite a big need to explain what happens to people who end up in psychiatry as being basic human experiences that are not from some other realm you know there um, so it's very contradictory but it gives me hope in some ways because I think starting a conversation about what would a world where someone like me who's sometimes okay 
sometimes able to write things, sometimes able to connect with people, and then other times really struggles. Like what would a world where someone like me is comfortable and accepted and even valued, what would that what would that feel like? What would and I think that when I was in psychiatry, it was completely evident that everyone around me was extraordinarily sensitive. I mean, I shouldn't say everyone, I don't want to valorize psychiatric patients, but many people had extraordinary knowledge and skills and they if their if these skills were what were valued in society, if there was a forum where they could be comfortable and accepted, then the world itself would be a much better place. I think that looking at the outside environment is something that is liberating. It's something different to the focus of psychiatry, which is like on persons, on brains, on minds, on biology and on your, what do you call it, maladaptive functioning or whatever. It's all like you're a machine that doesn't work the way you're meant to, but instead taking the focus outside, looking at what a world, what a space would be like where you're valued is um, something that, could start some some empowering conversations perhaps and that's where I find hope in the social model of disability that's one place I find hope what are some of the things that you find that you do for yourself uh, to live in the world as a person who communicates differently or has different struggles that they go through that doesn't embrace this this framework of of being borderline personality and and the psychiatric labeling how, how do you sort of manage to be in this in this world <laughs> sometimes not very well I think that for a while being part of an activist community was very important to me it reminded me constantly of the correctness of my feelings and my positions and the and that I wasn't some the word that comes to mind is freak I think that's probably why I, I think most of the self abuses in psychiatric <laughs> kind of language I wasn't a borderline and I think that that was at the beginning and now I actually think listening to myself is very important like if I'm in a social situation or some situation and I don't feel comfortable or something feels wrong really being able to listen to that and take it seriously and not even have to explain it like I think that sometimes if you grow up with very very distressed parents you never actually have much space ever in your life or your history to think what's going on for me what do I need you're just constantly trying to kind of mitigate the next disaster situation for them or to be I'm super sensitive to what other people might need all the time not that I get it right but I'm worrying about that and so I I think that knowing that I need time to myself, I need time with books, I need time to be physically active, that's very important, to be moving and running and to be changing my pace in the world. I think that's, uh, I had a period where I spent a lot of time looking at, at art because it was just something completely different to me, it was like a different language and different way of expressing human emotion that could I could connect with when I wasn't very verbal so I I don't know I think these are things that people do some people have more kind of 
practice in doing them and some some of us are told from when we're very young and then again in psychiatry that you know these are not our rights in the world to have our own space to listen to how we feel to to just you know be okay with whatever it is so you you want to you feel like you don't want to go on living that's a feeling (laughs) you know it's not something that you should have to suppress because it's so borderline or it's so that's awful I don't have the answers in fact I feel very humble in a way (laughs) I feel like I know less and less every day things I thought I knew I I don't know I think that's part of it though that you're changing constantly so you can't really come up with some little framework that is it it's more like a an ongoing human quest to to find a way to survive you know psychiatric survivors is an ongoing process not as a an accomplishment (laughs) Deborah you've done a lot of work with international activists people from all over the world who are working to change uh, psychiatry you've met a lot of different people from different countries and done a lot of traveling what are some things that you've learned from the international scene different cultures and different nations that uh, is inspiring to you Recently, I've been more involved with the World Network of Users and Survivors of Psychiatry, which has been a really, really wonderful experience, especially to connect with people who are doing advocacy in Africa, in India, in parts of the world where there may be less psychiatry, there often is less psychiatry or there's psychiatry in different forms, but mad people and distressed people are oppressed in in the community at the same time. Uh, Connecting with people in Eastern Europe where there's no social welfare and there's no very, very few community services and people have very, very distinct battles to even become economically separate from from their family Um, so it could be a choice between a life in an institution or a life with a very very oppressive family who's also violent towards you and controls everything you do so I think that the loss of autonomy that we have um, as as mad people and distressed people that our right to um, decide on the really basic things in our lives and very crucial things like whether to um, be part of the of psychiatry or, or part of any treatment that someone else proposes that taken away from us is something that connects. I think that's been very helpful to see connections but also to see asymmetries. I think that advocacy from the global north has been very very powerful and very it's done some incredible things it's achieved an enormous amount in international law in all sorts of ways but I think it's important not to impose that language or that way of working you know globally I think that's it and I think it's important not to cherry pick human rights abuses not to say oh well this thing in Africa is you know it fits into our ideas about psychiatry and certainly psychiatry is very very frightening the way psychiatry is spreading the way it's being advocated by the the World Health Organization and by many prominent academics and institutions in the west in um, the global south is terrifying but I don't I think it's all about dialogue it's and that's what's inspiring to listen to people's own take on what's happening and what would actually help you know in, in locally and and then to to ask what what can we do together what can we do to help each other Deborah, we are just about out of time. 
What have you heard activists from the global south asking for or recommending or what kinds of changes are they looking for? I think that what I have really taken in, what I've heard is about the need to transform communities, to make communities into places that are more supportive, more welcoming, have um, opportunities for people to do meaningful work, to be economically empowered, to be socially supported, to have forms of support for distress that might be indigenous, very old indigenous practices that people know are valuable and help and, and you know, are this is magic word, evidence phrase evidence-based and these things I suppose if you are far more evidence-based than anything like locking people up or or forcibly drugging them or forcibly um, electroshocking them and to create spaces by working with other people in the community people in in positions of power service providers all all kinds of people to create non-institutional support I guess that's that's There's a lot of work that's going on that is very, very, very encouraging. And I think there's like in having this conversation, people can find ideas that make sense to them and apply them in their local community. Ask what would we need to do that's different. A a colleague of mine in uh, Yolin uh, Santigods is doing some incredible work on a model of family um, conferencing which comes from practices that Maori elders in New Zealand have had where if there's a problem in the community, the problem, one way of approaching the problem is to ask the person who is experiencing it, um, who are some people you value, whose opinions you trust, who you feel you could share this with, who, whose perspective would you like to hear? And then getting a group of people together, they call a family in a sort of extended idea of family together to describe in words that are non-pathological. I mean, of course, they're non-pathological, but they're the person's own words and the, their friend's own words for what's going on and to come to some solutions that would actually be close to the person and the person might help the person to feel more connected with their community so it's not only a problem of an individual but it's a problem not even a problem it's just something happening in the community that this person is distressed and when they're distressed it would be helpful to have one person that they could just call and say two words to you know and those words would mean you know hold my hand like I mean not even literally but just hear me be there I need you you know I think that there's it's very very unique and I can't say that I fully understand this model or I think Yolin is doing some very very exciting work by bringing different practices together but I I I don't know how it would work in all situations with people with people like me who are a little bit cut off from their families and but but I think it's the main thing is that the conversation itself is happening and I think that's enabled through the survivor movement or the movement of people with psychosocial disabilities as some some people in the community uh, identify. Deborah Marshall thank you so much for joining us today on Madness Radio. Thank you Will. You've been listening to an interview with Deborah Marshall 
Deborah is a psychiatric survivor and human rights activist who grew up in Australia and today works as an editor in Prague, Czech Republic. And if you'd like to contact Deborah, you can send an email to the Madness Radio email address, which is info at madnessradio.net. You've been listening to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health, co-sponsored by the Icarus Project, Portland Hearing Voices, and Freedom Center. Madness Radio is hosted by Will Hall and producer is Leah Harris. Madness Radio is based at KBOO in Oregon and can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network. Listen on the internet at madnessradio.net and on iTunes. Contact us at radio at madnessradio.net.